Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that we can look at your word together tonight. We pray that it would teach us, encourage us, correct us and spur us on. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you think about great breakaways, what comes to mind? If you think perhaps in terms of rugby union, you might think of people like George Smith or Simon Poydevin or Richie McCaw. If you think of breakaways as sort of like a few days holiday, you might think of a few days away in Mudgee or Noosa or on Hamilton Island. But I was thinking more in terms of relational breakaways, times when one person or group splits off from another person or group. Think of, or think back to as the case, maybe the school playground. You've got a group of friends, there's some point of contention, there's a split and a group breaks off. And you have to think to yourself, who will I go with? Which group will I be part of? Or in politics, back in 1955, there was a split in the Australian Labor Party and the DLP split off. And if you've been around then, you would have had to think, will I go with the ALP or the DLP? Splits and breakaways are almost always painful, often very confusing, and they've regularly happened in the Christian community, in the church. There have been famous breakaways like the Gnostic Christians who broke away from the Orthodox Church around about the time of the second century, alleging that they had sort of higher personal knowledge. And then in the 16th century, the Protestant churches broke away from the uh, Roman Catholic Church in their efforts to focus on and get back to the Bible and the gospel of grace. Sometimes when breakaways occur, our sympathies may be with the mainstream group, as in the case of the Orthodox Church, when the Gnostics sort of split off, or in the case of the Reformation, our sympathies may be with the, the Protestant Church, which broke off uh, for reasons of Bible-focusedness. But whatever we think, when a breakaway occurs, it's almost always very unsettling. There's the pain of damaged relationships, and there are often the questions that arise and the confusion which can result. Now, the letter of 1 John was written to Christians who were going through this sort of experience, this sort of unsettling reality. And John very helpfully writes in chapter 2 to reassure, to warn and to encourage the Christians to whom he was writing. And he provides a lot of very helpful teaching in the process, which is good for us to take on board as well. This evening, of course, we're in the second week of our five-week series in the book of 1 John. We're up to chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 29. And if you've managed to get hold of an, an outline, which I put together, we're going to be thinking about the passage in three parts. Firstly, verses 12 to 14, assurance, you're on the right track. Second, verses 15 to 23, warning, stay on track. And finally, verses 24 to 29, exhortation, you've got this. So that's where we're going. Well, why don't we start with our first point, assurance you're on the right track with verses 12 to 14. As I said, John wrote to Christians who were in a very unsettling Christian context. It was the classic breakaway scenario. People who were apparently believers seemed to have broken away from the church. And John writes of these breakawayers 
who had false beliefs, we learn in verse 19, that they went out from us, but did not really belong to us. And then in verse 26, we learn that these guys are trying to lead you, the church, astray. So people had left the church and were trying to take people with them. Have you ever been in that sort of situation? In the 1980s, I knew people who left perfectly good Anglican churches in my area uh, for other churches. Perhaps they left sometimes because their friends left or because the other churches perhaps seemed more exciting for some reason. Or perhaps they believed the other churches had better beliefs and practices. It was an unsettling time for many people. And today, people break away from churches for all sorts of reasons. Now, if we find ourselves amidst that sort of scenario, what do we do? Well, the answer is very simply, you stick with or go to a gospel-believing church. John writes here to Christians who have responded to the gospel, who are seeking to live in accordance with the teaching of the scriptures and Jesus and his apostles. And here they may be tempted, it seems, by some of the false teaching of the people who have left. And John reassures them, you are on the right track. The implication is there's no need or reason for you to leave. And he does this initially in a fairly poetic way in verses 12 to 14. He addresses in turn children and then fathers and then young men and then does children, fathers, young men again. Now, what does he mean by those terms? It's probable that children uh, refers to the broader Christian church. Uh, We can deduce that from looking back at chapter 2, verse 1, for example. Fathers here probably refers to longer-term, more mature Christians, and young men perhaps refers to newer, more energetic Christians. But in any case, the assurances given to each of these groups are assurances that all Christians, including you and me, need to hear as well. For example, he starts by reassuring the children in verse 12. He says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now, a temptation for many people is to think, am I really forgiven? Sometimes as we go through life and we we can look back and appreciate perhaps the things which we've done which are wrong and we feel the weight of those wrongdoings, those sins, we may ask the question, are we really forgiven? Well, the assurance here given is that if people have responded to the gospel, that's the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection and his offer of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. If we've responded to that gospel by asking Jesus to forgive us and saying we want to follow him, we are forgiven. John writes to reassure people of that. Have we been too bad? Have we done enough? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you're a Christian, Jesus' death is big enough to cover, wipe out and forgive you for whatever you may have done. So if you're concerned about the need for forgiveness, you don't need to go anywhere else to get forgiveness. You get it in the gospel. John then reassures fathers. And in verse 13, he writes, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. It's a reference to God. Now, sometimes we might be tempted to think, is there a God? 
Do we really know God? Is the God we know the right God? Well, the answer here given very clearly is through Jesus, the Son of God in his gospel, yes, you do know God via that means. You don't need to go anywhere else to fully and properly know God. John then gives young men a number of assurances. In verses 13 and 14, he writes, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And later, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. Now, I think these reassurances apply very well to younger Christians, whether they be male or female. But what is John saying and what isn't he saying? Firstly, John isn't saying to these younger Christians that you can do it in your own strength. I mean, young people can often think they're invincible, especially when they're driving. Uh, John's not feeding into that. He's not saying, yeah, you can do it. You know, you're young, you can do anything. What John is saying is that in the Lord, we can do it. In the Lord, with the Word and with the Spirit, we can overcome the evil one and we can be strong. Thanks to God. Now, this is encouraging for younger believers because often younger believers will think, will I keep going with this faith? I've got decades ahead of me. Uh, I'm beset by temptations and distractions and false teachings of all sorts. Am I, only going, to, am I going to get there through there at the long haul? The assurance here is given to Christians of any age that with God, with God's spirit and with God's word, we can overcome the evil one we can be strong, we can go the distance. And if that's our concern, we don't need to go anywhere else outside the Orthodox Christian Church, the teaching of the gospel and the spirit to have assurance about that. Well, that's very encouraging. But then John moves from assurance to warning. And here's our second point, a warning to stay on track, verses 15 to 23. I wonder whether you ever think that staying on track can be a little bit, well, boring. Um, if you're like me, you've probably done a bit more bushwalking than usual over recent weeks. And when we're out walking on a bush track, and sometimes it is fun to go off track and do a bit of exploring. So perhaps that's not the best illustration for what we're about to say. A better illustration might relate to Cambodia. Yes, the country of Cambodia. In recent times, Cambodia has become quite a popular travel destination, particularly with backpackers. There are some great things to see there, particularly a temple complex called Angkor Wat. Apparently, it's the largest temple complex in the world. But Cambodia, for all the things it has going for it, has one main problem, unexploded landmines. You see, this is the legacy of three decades of war. And it's been an estimated that anywhere from 4 million to 10 million unexploded landmines dot the country. Not surprisingly and very tragically, Cambodia has some 40,000 amputees, people who have lost an arm or a leg uh, because of um, landmines. Now, you can have a lot of fun and, and adventure in Cambodia, but you have your best time exploring Cambodia by staying on the approved paths. You don't want to stray off there. So too, as a Christian, uh, the best way we can follow Jesus is to stay on track and avoid things which knock us off track into landmine territory. And the two things that John writes about here are temptations, 
and Jesus deniers. Let's firstly think about temptations. Verse 15, John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, we need to be clear here about what the world means and doesn't mean here. What's he talking about? John is not here referring to the world in terms of the beauty of the created order. He's not necessarily referring to many worthwhile pursuits, which we might find ourselves involved with, you know, music, sport, holidays, things like that. And it doesn't even mean people who may not be believers. It can be perfectly good to properly love all these people and all these things. What the world refers to here, though, is things in society that are hostile to God. Society organized against God and the things God wants to promote. It's those things that we should not love. Now, uh, many aspects of the world, of course, do oppose God and his purposes. And the anti-God, um, I guess, aspects of the world can most often be clearly seen in temptations. Look at verse 16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. You see, we can be tempted to lust after many things. Uh, money, um, sex, uh, power. It's the plot of so many movies and TV series, isn't it? Now, when these things start to impact our own lives, we may use more sanitised words like yeah, security, relationships, influence, but it can amount to the same thing. We can be tempted by money, sex and power outside of the church, which can ruin us and others and distract us from our ministry. We're contempted by power, sex and money inside the church, which ruins many things, including the Christian ministry of that church. And I could give examples of bullying, sexual immorality and misuse of money in church contexts uh, if I wanted to, but I won't. Now, there are two problems highlighted with loving the world in this sense, loving these sorts of anti-God things. The first and most obvious one is it's in direct opposition to God and his purposes. Verse 15 says, if anybody loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. You can't both love God and things that oppose God. You can't be a mature Christian materialist or a mature Christian fornicator or a mature Christian big head. <laughs> Secondly, uh, the joys in the, the world, the anti-God world, are also short-lived. Verse 17 says, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Loving the world, world understood in this way, is a lousy long-term investment. Now, the second thing that John warned us about here that can throw us off course are Jesus' deniers. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. Dear children, he writes, this is the last hour. Now, I should note here that when John refers to the last hour, I understand it to mean he's referring to the last days. That is the time between Jesus' first coming around 2,000 years ago and his second coming whenever that may be in the future, whether next week or next century or further away. And so it becomes obvious that we are actually living in that time period now, the last days, we are living in the last hour. So he says, this is the last hour. 
As you have heard that the Antichrist in coming is coming, even now many Antichrists, plural, have come. Now, I could say a lot about the Antichrist, but we don't have time for that. But Antichrists, plural, referred to here, refers to those who oppose Jesus. Antichrists here refers to those who oppose Jesus. And many have done this over the centuries. And John identifies those who were breaking away from the church here in the context of which he was writing as examples of antichrists. And two of the things that antichrists may do are described in verse 22. John writes, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the antichrist, denying the father and the son. So it seems that uh, an antichrist will often deny that Jesus is the Christ and deny that Jesus is the son or the son of God. Now, many people today deny that Jesus Christ is the unique son of God. Atheists and every major non-Christian religion, in fact, deny it. A few years ago, I read a, a book by John Dixon called A Spectator's Guide to World Religions. And uh, Dixon highlights this. Uh, of Hindus, many Hindus are happy to see Jesus as a God, but not as the unique Son of God. Many Buddhists don't believe in God or gods. The Jewish Talmud says that Jesus was killed for practicing sorcery and leading Israel astray. And the Muslim Quran refutes the divinity of Christ. All these people deny Jesus as the Christ and or the Son of God. Now, can I say, just a tip here, uh, the word antichrist is a pretty highly charged one. So it may not be wisest for you to go and refer to your non-believing family and friends, who you may love a lot, as antichrists. It's not really going to get much going for it. But basically, antichrists here are people who oppose Jesus being the Christ and the Son of God. And we need to be aware that people who do oppose Jesus in this way, whatever we may call them, uh, can have a, a negative influence on us. So we need to be careful and cautious to guard ourselves and protect ourselves. So with these warnings in mind, Jesus finally turns to encouragement. Point three, the exhortation, you've got this, verses 24 to 29. Now, one of the many events I absolutely loved watching at the recent Tokyo Olympics was the men's decathlon. And you may recall uh, that a 21-year-old Australian, Ashley Maloney, ended up winning the bronze medal in this particularly gruelling event. The decathlon has you competing in 10 events, sprinting, middle distance, throwing and jumping. And the winner of that event has good claim to be the best athlete in the world. Anyway, going into the last event, which was the 1500 metres, uh, the Australian was narrowly ahead of the person who was in fourth place. And as the race progressed, with about a lap to go, there was another Australian in the race who was out of medal contention called Cedric Dubler. And Dubler, what he did, he went out of his way to pace Maloney, to encourage him and to try and help him to run the best time he possibly could. And there's a great shot, some of you may have seen, of about a lap to go in the race. And there's Dubler yelling something at Maloney, presumably exhorting him to lift, to do his best. Perhaps he was saying something along the lines of, you've got this, you know, keep going. Well, that's sort of what John is doing here with the Christian believers. He's saying, you can do this. You've got this. You're on the right track. Keep going. You can get there. 
And his, his confidence is not because the Christians to whom he was writing were necessarily super talented or super self-disciplined or like some sort of world champion spiritual decathlete. His confidence is based on the fact that the people to whom he is writing have God's spirit and have God's word. Look at verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, referring to the Spirit, and all of you know the truth, referring to the gospel and God's word. He unpacks this idea a few verses later. Verse 24, he says, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. In summary, you've got the word of God, stick to it. You have the gospel, the, the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, stick to and rely on this. Then a few verses later, he says in verse 27, as for you, the anointing you receive from him, a reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit, which believers receive, uh, as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his, his anointing teaches you about all things and as that anointing is real. In summary, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will give you the wisdom that you need. Now, a quick clarification. When John says you don't need anyone to teach you, he doesn't mean don't listen to anyone, just work it out yourself. I mean, for goodness sake, John's writing this letter to them to teach them, isn't he? What he's referring to, I believe there, is that with the gospel, the word and the spirit, they have what they need to keep them on course, to help them to go the distance. Now, this desire to move beyond God's word and God's spirit often comes out. There seemed to be a mistake which those people who pursued Gnostic Christianity in the second century or thereabouts made. They were looking for something more. They looked for sort of elevated personal spiritual knowledge of certain sorts. They tried to go beyond the word and the spirit and find something else which put them on a higher plane. And there's a danger for some Christians today also to look for more, some, something in addition, some new idea, some novelty, some silver bullet that will make following Jesus easier or more exciting or more interesting or more whatever. But what John makes perfectly clear is that with God's word and God's spirit, we have what we need. And can I say that God's word and God's spirit certainly can make life very exciting, as well as very challenging at times. So let me conclude. If we find ourselves exposed to some spiritual breakaway movement from the Christian church, some apparent church split over doctrine or practice, if we find ourselves buffeted by the anti-God forces in this world, the temptations, um, Jesus-denying teachers or the like, and if we find ourselves wondering whether we can stick it in there for the long haul, what we need to do is to continue to look to God's word and God's spirit who always work together to propel us forward in our faith. John writes in verse 28, but now dear children, continue in him. And the big idea to help us in that regard is stay on track with God's word and God's spirit. Stay on track with God's word and God's spirit. Let me pray that that would be true for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we all encounter 
difficulties, distractions, temptations, new ideas which we might find confusing, we do pray that we will consistently look to you, to your word and to your spirit to give us strength and wisdom to keep going on track until the day when we meet you in your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.